Section 4 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Preface. Part 2. The Records of Our Past. The Memories of the People. The committee listened to the testimony of more than 200 public witnesses who appeared before us. We heard from people, or their family members, who had been subjects in controversial radiation experiments, including the plutonium injections, total body irradiation experiments, and experiments involving the use of radioactive tracers with institutionalized children. We heard from atomic veterans, soldiers who had been marched to ground zero at atomic bomb tests, sailors who had walked the decks of ships contaminated by radioactive mist, and pilots who had flown through radioactive mushroom clouds. We also heard from their widows. We heard from people who lived downwind from nuclear weapons tests in Nevada and intentional releases of radioactive material in Washington State. We heard from the Navajo miners, who had served the country in uranium mines filled with radioactive dust, from native Alaskans who had been experimented upon by a military cold-weather research lab, and from Marshall Islanders, whose Pacific homeland had been contaminated by fallout after a 1954 hydrogen bomb test. We heard from officials and researchers responsible for human research today, and from those who were present at or near the dawn of the Cold War. We heard from individuals who, on their own time, had been long seeking to piece together the story of human radiation experiments and offer to share their findings. We heard from scholars, from members of Congress, and from people who wanted to bear witness for those who could no longer speak. We heard from a woman who, as a high school student intern decades ago, attended at the bedside while a terminally ill patient was injected with uranium, and from a powerfully spoken veteran of the nuclear weapons workforce who told of the body snatching of dead friends in the name of science. More important, we heard from many people who believed that something involving the government and radiation happened to them or their loved ones decades ago. Most had been unable to find out exactly what had happened or why, and now they wanted to know the truth. The witnesses spoke eloquently of their pain, their frustration, and the reasons they do not trust the government. Their very appearance before the committee testified to a commitment to the country and to the value of the nation's effort to understand its past. We are deeply grateful to all of these witnesses who overcame the obstacles of geography and emotions to participate in this work. We combined our public meetings with additional efforts to interview and record for the nation's archives those who could shed light on Cold War human radiation experiments and on the ethics of biomedical experimentation. Dozens of interviews were conducted with former government officials responsible for programs, 
that included radiation research, as well as with radiation researchers. In Mississippi, we talked with a retired general who served as a military assistant to secretaries of defense in the 1940s and 1950s. In Berkeley, we talked with the chemist who was one of the discoverers of plutonium. In Rhode Island, we talked with the physicist who served as the link between the civilian health and safety agencies and the Cold War military research efforts. In Florida, we talked with a pioneer in health physics, a discipline created to provide for the safety of nuclear weapons workers. In San Francisco and Washington, D.C., we talked to the lawyers who advised the Atomic Energy Commission at its post-war creation. In New York, we talked with a Navy radiation researcher who was rousted from his Maryland laboratory to respond to the emergency created by the exposure of the Marshall Islanders. In San Diego, we talked with a researcher whose own career and massive history of radiation research had covered much of the committee's territory. We also launched a special effort called the Ethics Oral History Project to learn from eminent physicians who were beginning their careers in academic medicine in the 1940s and 1950s about how research with human subjects was then conducted. The Ethics Oral History Project also included interviews with two people who had been administrators of the National Institutes of Health during the 1950s, since they were intimately involved with ethical and legal aspects of research involving human subjects at the time. We listened to all these people and more, and through their testimony, this report is informed. Bounds of Our Inquiry in the course of listening to public testimony, it became clear to us that confusion exists about what an experiment is and whether it can be distinguished from other activities in which people are put at risk and information is gathered about them. The biomedical community, for example, struggles with the distinction between scientific research and related activities. In a medical setting, it is sometimes hard to distinguish a formal experiment designed to test the effectiveness of a treatment from ordinary medical care in which the same treatment is being administered outside of the research project. The patient receiving the treatment may discern no difference between the two, but the distinction is relevant to questions of ethics. The physician investigator may face conflicts between the obligation to do what is best for each individual patient and the requirements of scientific research, whereas the physician involved only in clinical care has a responsibility solely to the patient. Similarly, in an occupational setting in which employees are put at risk, it is often difficult to distinguish formal scientific efforts to study effects on the health of employees, from routine monitoring of employees' exposure to hazards in the workplace for purposes of ensuring worker safety. In the first case, the rules of research ethics apply. In the second, they do not. And yet, here too, the worker may discern no difference between the two activities. A further complication for the committee to consider was the fact that research in occupational settings rarely takes the form of a classic experiment 
in which the investigator controls the variable under study and then randomly assigns subjects to be in the treatment or control group instead most occupational research employs observational and statistical methods drawing most heavily from the field of epidemiology these distinctions were unimportant however to the representatives of atomic veterans iranian miners and residents of the marshall islands who told us of their belief that they or those they spoke for were subjects of research the committee struggled with how strictly to define human radiation experiments for purposes of our inquiry there is no single clear definition of an experiment that is widely subscribed to by every member of the biomedical community even our description above of a classic experiment is open to contest today as well as in the past the scientific community has rarely employed the term experiment in discussions of biomedical research other terms not necessarily synonymous such as clinical study clinical investigation quasi-experiment and case control study are all used we concluded that it was not possible to interpret our charge by stipulating an artificial definition of human radiation experiment instead in keeping with the realities of biomedical research we decided to interpret our charge broadly as including both research involving human subjects in which the research design called for exposing subjects to ionizing radiation and research designed to study the effects of radiation exposure resulting from non-experimental activities the latter category includes the research involving uranium miners and marshall islanders in these cases we quickly determined that it was in some respects impossible to isolate the ethical questions raised by the research from the ethics of the context in which the research was conducted a central issue was the exposure of people to risk regardless of whether they were clearly understood to be subjects of research this characterization is true as well of the experience of atomic veterans as a consequence we considered events that might be said to be on the boundary between research and some other activity our inquiry underscored the importance for social policy of the need to keep focused on questions of risk and well-being regardless of what side of that boundary the activity producing the risk falls human experimentation today in tandem with the reconstruction of the past we undertook three projects to examine the current state of human radiation experiments first we studied how each agency of the federal government that currently conducts or funds research involving human subjects regulates this activity and oversees it we surveyed what the operative rules are how they are implemented and how they are enforced second from among the very large number of research projects involving human subjects currently supported by the federal government we randomly selected 125 research projects for scrutiny by the committee 
for each of these projects we reviewed all available relevant documentation to assess how well it appeared the rights and interests of the subjects participating in these projects were being protected the success of this review required the cooperation of private research institutions all over the country on whom we were dependent for access to important documents we had expected that perhaps no more than half of those asked to cooperate would agree to do so but with little hesitation all the research centers that we approached agreed to cooperate third to learn from the subjects themselves the committee interviewed almost nineteen hundred patients receiving medical care in outpatient facilities of private and federal hospitals throughout the country we asked patients about their attitudes towards medical research with human subjects and about the meaning they attached to the different terms used to explain medical research to potential subjects we ascertained and attempted to verify how many of these patients were currently or ever had been subjects to research patient subjects were asked about their reasons for agreeing to join research projects patients who reported having refused offers to enter research projects were asked why they had decided against participating in all three of these projects we focused not only on human radiation experiments but on human research generally in critical but not all respects the government regulations that apply to human radiation research do not differ from those that govern other kinds of research involving human subjects moreover the underlying ethical principles that should guide the conduct of research are identical whether one is considering human radiation research or all research with human subjects finally the committee hoped to learn whether in practice there are any differences between the conduct of radiation and non-radiation experiments lessons from history looking to the future what we have found is a story about the government's attempt to serve two critical purposes safeguarding national security and advancing medical knowledge one half century ago the u s government and its experts in the fields of radiation and medicine were seeking to learn more about radiation in order to protect workers service personnel and the general public against potential atomic war and individuals against the menace of disease toward these laudable ends the government used patients workers soldiers and others as experimental subjects it acted through the experts to whom we regularly entrust the well-being of our country and ourselves elected officials civil servants generals physicians and medical researchers moreover the government acted with full knowledge that the use of individuals to serve the ends of government raises basic ethical questions if as we look back there could be doubt about the importance of the matter to the leaders of the time we need only to look at the appearance before the u s senate of david lilienthal who had been nominated to serve as the first chairman 
of the atomic energy commission the civilian successor to the manhattan project and the predecessor to today's department of energy in his testimony lilienthal forcefully stated all government and private institutions must be designed to promote and protect and defend the integrity and the dignity of the individual any forms of government which make men means rather than ends in themselves are contrary to this conception and therefore i am deeply opposed to them the fundamental tenet of communism is that the state is an end in itself and that therefore the powers which the state exercises over the individual are without any ethical standards to limit them this i deeply disbelieve what did happen when individuals were sometimes used as means to achieve national goals how well were the national goals of preserving the peace and advancing medical science reconciled with the equally important end of respect for individual dignity and health what rules were followed to protect people and how well did they work was the public let in on the balancing of collective and individual interest in what sense did the public in general and individuals in particular know what was happening and have the opportunity to provide their meaningful consent in this report we try to convey our understanding of how when only good was sought when its pursuit was entrusted to the experts on whom we most relied and when missions were substantially accomplished distrust as well as accomplishment remains we focus on the ways in which the government and its experts recognized the interest of individual dignity and sought to strike a balance with the national interests being pursued we focus equally on the extent to which the public was privy to this balancing in particular we try to show how individuals understanding and participation were limited by the conjunction of government secrecy and expert knowledge all americans should experience immense satisfaction in the strides that have been made toward accomplishing both our national security and our medical research goals however as attested to by the many thousands of letters and calls that led to the committee's creation and the eloquent statements of the witnesses who appeared before us this pride is diluted by a bitter aftertaste distrust by many americans of the federal government and those who served it the government has the power to create and keep secrets of immense importance to us all secret keeping is a part of life secret keeping by the government may be in the national interest however if government is to be trusted it is important to know at the very least the basic rules of secrecy and to know that they are reasonable and that they are being followed similarly experts by training and experience have knowledge that individual people must as a practical matter rely on however legitimate questions arise when experts wear multiple hats or when they are relied on in areas beyond their expertise 
where official secrecy is coupled with expert authority and both are focused on a public that is not privy to secrets and does not speak the languages of experts the potential for distrust is substantial in telling the story and asking the questions we have kept our eyes open for ways in which lost trust can be restored it might be presumed that the past we report on here is so different from the present that it will be of little use in understanding research involving human subjects today in fact as we shall see basic questions posed by the story of human radiation experiments conducted during the nineteen forty four to nineteen seventy four period are no less relevant today then as now there were standards the question is how they worked to protect individuals and the public then as now the ethical impulse was complexly alloyed with concerns for legal liability and public image then as now the most difficult questions often concern the scope and practical meaning of ethical rules rather than their necessity the country has come to recognize from its experience of the past half century that tinkering with the regulations that govern publicly supported institutions imposing ethical codes on experts and altering the balance between secrecy and openness are important but not always sufficient means of reform the most important element is a citizenry that understands the limits of these activities that is why the purpose of this story is not simply to learn which changes to make in rules or policies that apply to government or professionals but to begin to learn something more about how the cold war worked as the most important means to making the world of tomorrow work better how this report is organized though this report is addressed largely to those who can affect future policy in light of the information the advisory committee has gathered specifically the human radiation interagency working group it has been written in such a way that it should be accessible to a wide range of interested readers we begin with an introduction titled the atomic century which describes the intersection of several developments the birth and remarkable growth of radiation science the parallel changes in medicine and medical research and the intersection of these changes with government programs that called on medical researchers to play important new roles beyond that involved in the traditional doctor-patient relationship the introduction concludes with a section titled the basics of radiation science for the lay reader the remainder of the text is divided into four parts each part is preceded by an overview part one ethics of human subjects research a historical perspective which contains four chapters explores how both federal government agencies and the medical profession approached human experimentation in the period nineteen forty four through nineteen seventy four we begin with the story of the principles stated at mid-century at the highest levels of the cold war medical research bureaucracies and what we have ascertained about 
whether these principles were translated into federal rules or requirements. We then turn to the norms and practices engaged at the time by medical researchers themselves. It is in this chapter that we report the results of our Ethics Oral History Project. In Chapter 3, we review the development of formal and public regulations concerning research involving human subjects in the 1960s and 1970s. In the last chapter, in Part 1, we present our framework for evaluating the ethics of human radiation experiments, grounded in both history and philosophical analysis. Part 2. Case Studies approaches particular experiments from several angles, each of which raises overlapping ethical questions. The chapters on the plutonium injections and total body irradiation consider the use of sick patients to provide data needed to protect the health of workers engaged in the production of nuclear weapons. The chapter on prisoners considers the use of healthy subjects for this purpose. The chapter on children considers experimentation with particularly vulnerable people, and the chapter on the AEC program of radioisotope distribution considers the institutional safeguards that underlay the conduct of thousands of human radiation experiments. The chapters on intentional releases, atomic veterans, and observational studies consider in common, situations in which entire groups of people were exposed to risk as a consequence of government-sponsored Cold War programs. The section concludes with a review of the degree to which secrecy impaired and may still impair our ability to understand human radiation experiments and intentional releases conducted in the 1944-1974 period. Part 3 Contemporary Projects reports the finding of our three inquiries into the present. We begin by describing what we have learned about how the different federal agencies that sponsor human research regulate and oversee this activity. Next, we report the results of our Research Proposal Review Project, followed by the results of our Subject Interview Study. Part 3 concludes with the Committee's synthesis of the implications of the results of all three of these projects for the current state of human subject research. Part 4, Coming to Terms with the Past, Looking Ahead to the Future, reports the Committee's findings and recommendations. A final note. The Committee's findings and recommendations represent our best efforts to distill almost 18 months of inquiry into, debate about, and analysis of human radiation experiments. But what they cannot fully express is the appreciation we developed for how much damage was done to individuals and to the American people during the period we investigated, and how this damage endures today. The damage we speak of here is not physical injury, although this too did occur in some cases. Rather, the damage is measured in the pain felt by the people who believe that they had, or their loved ones were, 
treated with disrespect for their dignity and disregard for their interests by a government and a profession in which they had placed their trust it is measured in a too often cynical citizenry some of whom have lost faith in their government to be honest brokers of information about risks to the public and the purposes of the government actions and it is measured in the confusion among patients that remains to-day about the differences between medical research and medical care differences that can impede the ability of patients to determine what is in their own best interest in the period that we examined extraordinary advances in biomedicine were achieved and a foundation was laid for fifty years without a world war at the same time however it was a time of arrogance and paternalism on the part of government officials and the biomedical community that we would not under any circumstances wish to see repeated as we listened to the heart-rending testimony of many public witnesses we came to feel great sorrow about the suffering they described our most difficult task was determining what to recommend as the appropriate national response to these emotions and the events that stimulated them what can best precipitate the healing of wounds and the restoration of trust appropriate remedies for those who were wronged or harmed were of critical importance but remedies alone speak only to the past not the future it is equally important that the historical record having been spelled out and appropriate remedies identified we as a nation move forward and take action to prevent similar occurrences from happening in the future in the end if trust in government is to be restored those in power must also act in good faith in their dealings with the citizenry at the same time however we must recognize that unless we have expectations of honesty and fairness from our government and unless we are vigilant in holding the government to those expectations trust will never be restored finally we hope that this report conveys the sense of gratitude and honor that we experienced as citizens serving on the advisory committee we were provided by the president with extraordinary access to the records of our past and given complete liberty to deliberate on what we found although some of what we report is a matter for national regret our freedom of inquiry and the cooperation we received from officials and fellow citizens of all perspectives confirms that our nation's highest traditions are not things of the past but live very much in the present end of section four